This episode of The Vast Majority is brought to you by Ovid.tv. Bringing together films from eight leading independent film distributors, Ovid.tv is the new streaming service for social issue, documentary, and art house films, largely unavailable on any other platform. With 500 titles now available, Ovid.tv offers powerful documentaries addressing urgent political issues from climate change and reproductive rights to immigration and economic justice. Among many films on progressive politics, one to watch is American Socialist, which dives into the life of Bernie Sanders' predecessor, Eugene Debs, who received one million votes in the U.S. presidential election on the Socialist Party ticket while in prison for having protested World War I. From now until July 31st, you can save 50% off the regular monthly subscription price. Just head over to ovid.tv, that's O-V-I-D dot TV. Sign up for the coupon code Jacobin at checkout, and you will get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Karl Marx once wrote dismissively of those that write recipes for the cookshops of the future. He was emphasizing that we can't come up with some kind of pre-made plan right now for what our future socialist society will look like because that would be undemocratic and it wouldn't take into account the specific conditions that such a society would be created in, and thus it would most likely be generally very wrong. But Sam Gindin argues that we can't use that quote as a way to excuse ourselves from providing credible answers to people for what a future socialism might look like. Mass numbers of people aren't going to get on board with the socialist movement if we don't. So Sam set out to provide some of those answers, or at least some basic ideas about a feasible future socialism, in his article Socialism for Realists in our journal Catalyst. Sam Gindin was for many years the research director and assistant to the president of the Canadian Auto Workers, now Unifor. He's the author of several books, including The Making of Global Capitalism, as well as The Socialist Challenge Today, both co-authored with Leo Panitch. And he's also a regular contributor to Jacobin. Here's Sam Gindin. Sam Gindin, welcome to The Vast Majority. Great to be here. You have the distinct honor of being the very first Canadian on this podcast. Good, and uh, we're, we're all following what you're doing down there. It's, it's nice to be following you guys for a change. <laughs> uh, so you have this article in Catalyst, uh, Socialism for Realists. And I assume you meant by that title uh, as distinct from socialism for uh, utopians. So can you just talk about the general thinking behind why you wanted to write this article and why it's important to lay out a case for socialism for realists? Socialist discourse has really emerged in the United States. But much of that discourse is still very much about social democracy, in fact. It's about restoring or extending the welfare state. And people can imagine that. But if you really ask the question of, uh, well, what about a society in which private property and the means of production didn't really exist? What about a society where there was planning, but also democracy? What about a society in which uh, ordinary working people ran the world? Uh, Then people look at you a little bit differently. And I think we're at a point that You're going to get that kind of question asking soon if you're successful at all. To get people to make the commitment to take that on, uh, you know, it's going to, uh, people are going to say, wait a second, I don't know if that's possible. I think you're going to have to be able to answer it, first of all, to yourselves as a socialist. So you really have confidence in it. 
and can sustain, your, sustain yourself. And second of all, to people that you're trying to win over to socialism. And this is especially pressing, or it will be especially pressing in the near future, I think, because right now the success, you know, the rising success of socialism in the United States, at least, is in some ways premised on the fact that people don't really know what we mean by when we say socialism. They, they associate it with these kind of social democratic demands. But if you actually had to get down to brass tacks about what it would mean, and you and you don't have a uh, you don't have a credible answer for for people. Uh, you you wouldn't be able to continue to see probably like the rising poll numbers that show that Americans uh, say that they you know, do think that some level of socialism, whatever that means, would be uh, beneficial for society. So it will probably become a more pressing task to have that definition in the in the near future once the sort of novelty of this rebirth of socialism wears off definitely i mean in two ways one is that question of skepticism because uh that's, that's something like one in six people in the united states identify socialism with taking over the means of production so a lot of those polls aren't that uh meaningful although it's obviously created space for having the socialist discourse but the other thing is that once you start to move towards real socialism, uh, it's important that we've thought about it a lot. So we have a sense of what's possible and what's not possible and a sense of uh, safeguards on what direction are we really moving in as we struggle with compromises and trying to get there. So one of the first things that you argue in the article is that we can't pretend like there aren't barriers to the world that we want to create. And we, we need an honest presentation of those barriers. So could you talk a little bit about what some of those barriers are? I'm thinking in particular about this question of scarcity, which in insofar as there has been some uh, imagining of what a future socialist world could look like, there's been a lot over the last few years that has focused on a kind of post-scarcity model, the sort of uh, full luxury gay space communism kind of uh, approach. And you're arguing uh, sort of against that in, in saying, no, scarcity is going to be with us for the foreseeable future and we need to plan accordingly. When I raise scarcity, what I mean is that choices will have to be made. When people assume that there won't be scarcity, it's kind of like, well, uh, we don't actually have to deal with any difficult choices. We can have as much of everything as we want. What I'm trying to emphasize is that we're going to have to make choices. As long as people don't feel like going to work every day and working a full days for a full day, uh, choices will have to be made. Unless you assume that, that people are ready to uh, work basically for free just because they love the work and do whatever kind of work is needed, however you uh, inform them about what's needed, then you won't have scarcity. But as long as there's a choice, uh, then you have to have some incentives. People have to say, well, I'm trading off, I'm giving up leisure. That's a scarce thing for me, and I, I expect to be compensated in some way. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a question of do we need more things. It's a question of saying uh, there's all kinds of different things that we could have, like collective goods and collective services. Don't we want more education in a socialist society? Don't we want more public spaces and more green spaces? Don't we all want to have time to uh, uh, learn how to play uh, music? So. Once you begin to, to move away from just things, 
then you begin to see, well, yeah, there's all kinds of things we may want, all kinds of services we may want. And that's going to demand some choices between one thing and another thing and different preferences that people have uh, become very important. So I think I, I think it's copying out to just assume that we can have whatever we want without having to make those choices. And if we're serious, we have to say, well, how do we solve this problem in the context of in which choices have to be made between how our uh, labor power is actually used, where it goes, how much of it is, how intense we are, intensive it is, etc. I have to say that, you know, I like the argument just on a gut level more, the people who say that I'm not going to have any limits to anything that I or the rest of the society that I live in have on things I consume and how we decide to produce that. That's that's like that sounds funner than your emphasis that there actually are limits on things that we have to do. One of the things, though, that you mentioned in the article is that we will still under this future socialist society that will have to compel people to do things and. Uh, and that is obviously uh, one of the most central quandaries of any future socialist society. I mean, we saw in past socialist societies like the Soviet Union that this was something that they had to deal with. And we are not big fans of how it was dealt with uh, for much of Soviet history. So that that compulsion of of people will still be necessary to figure out in a socialist society. The issue is, this is really complicated. You know, people, we want planning because planning, you, you need planning to deal with the environment. You need planning to uh, decide what you're going to do. But as soon as you start talking about planning, you have to think about, well, how are we going to have checks on the planners? How do we make this democracy? Uh, when we talk about uh, workers' control and workers controlling a factory, for example, well, the question is, how does that fit into a larger plan? Can workers just go ahead and do what they want? And how does that fit into what we, uh, you know, how we see society being structured? We can say, well, why don't people just get together and find out what they all need, and then we can just make it? Well, the trouble is, if you, ma if you imagine people uh, saying, uh, I'm making a vehicle, electric vehicle, let's say. And, uh, well, then you have to know, well, how many of these does the community want? And then you have to ask, well, how much aluminum should I use? And where else can the aluminum be used? Then whatever you're doing, if it's a dynamic society of any kind, it'll be changed immediately. People's tastes change instantly. So as soon as you get everybody together and you go through everything, how are you going to make it and what the suppliers think and what the demand is, then somebody changes their mind. Then you have to get together and play with this again. So that case, you know, and you don't want to be meeting to death. You don't want to constantly be in meetings trying to work this out. So we have to have some mechanisms for dealing with how choices are made, how people actually have this autonomy, uh, how as an individual you can you know, choose different jobs, uh, how planning can work without becoming bureaucratic. So I, I'm just trying to stress, you know, I, I mean, I, I think we can imagine a society that's really creative, that has a lot of freedom, that really values people developing their capacities in which people have all kinds of room for making decisions. But we do have to figure out, well, how can this all come together? So before we get into the nuts and bolts of how to do that, you mentioned in the first part of your article, uh, your basic argument that the state isn't going to disappear anytime soon. It's not going to wither away even under socialism. I mean, if you're imagining... 
it's a period after the revolution, uh, depending on the revolution and the past history, all the difficulties you'll have to deal with just in a transition. But the question of the state is fundamental because it is a capitalist state. It developed historically uh, in response to solving problems to help make capitalism uh, work. So it has all, all kinds of capacities that are essential to making capitalism work. And it doesn't have the kind of capacities we need to figure out how to administer the state so it expands democracy uh, in the workplace and community uh, and in terms of democratic planning. So what has to be thought about is we need, a we need a transformation of the state. We need a state that has different kinds of capacities that have never actually existed within the state before. You know, we have to think about, well, what would workers in the state be doing? Would they be saying, well, now as, you know, a strong union in, 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 uh, in the state, we'll just take care of ourselves and it'll be easier because we've got a sympathetic state? Or do you have to start saying, no, we've got different responsibilities. We actually want to figure out how we can help with the housing situation. We want to figure out how to help with anybody who's got any kind of a problem. So, you know, you, you have to transform unions. We have to transform ourselves. But we have to think about transforming the state because we still need this mechanism for coordinating uh, how you allocate investment, how you coordinate uh, inputs and outputs, how you think about uh, where you're going as a society regionally, how you decide how fast you want to get rid of private goods and just move to free goods and public goods. These are all questions that require some kind of administrative mechanisms. And the problem with wishing them away is you never start figuring out how to deal with them. And then you're suddenly confronted with this problem that uh, you, know, you can't cope with. I mean, one of the things we have to recognize about the road to socialism is it's going to be messy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a process. You're going to have to figure out checks and balances. Uh, if it's democratic, then it means that, well, people may say they don't like it after a point. You're going to have to keep winning people over to it. And you might lose. So, you know, you might lose for a while. So it's, it's this complexity and this difficulty that we have to make ourselves ready for. You know, we're talking about a world historic event. We're talking about creating something that's never existed before. We're talking about people actually saying we're not just moving with history, we're going to make history. And that is such a difficult process because you're constantly discovering, learning, inventing. And that's what makes it so exciting rather than saying, shit, that's too hard. Your article does lay out a lot of those complexities. And in a way, it feels more daunting than ever. But on the other hand, for someone who is honest with themselves and is thinking about the road to socialism, it's, it allows you to sort of breathe a sigh of relief because you're like, ah, yeah, like I don't have to pretend like this whole thing uh, is is going to be easy. Like here is somebody who is really wrestling with the messiness of what that transitionary process would look like, who is not who who is a you know a, a bone deep uh, socialist, but is not pretending that this is going to be a, a simple process with an easy roadmap. So let's talk about some of the nuts and bolts here. So uh, you say in the second section of your article that uh, socialism would need to have both planning and markets. Uh, let's start with the the second one. I think the, the first one is maybe more obvious to people, although we should get into the details of that. But why markets or, or even what is this kind of market that you 
uh, envision? Why do we need it and what would it look like? I really have trouble imagining uh, a perfect model where you could say you can just plan everything and everybody can do what they want and it'll all work out. And it's not because uh, people aren't perfectible uh, or, uh, you know, we can't invent new technologies and ways of doing things. It's because even if people are perfectly committed to socialism, they have to have a way of deciding, why should I do it this way? You know, I'm talking about people, for example, working on making a product in a factory. Why should I make it this way rather than another way? I have to have a way of judging whether the material I'm using and how much of it I'm using is really the best way to use the material. That's a critical question. And you can't just decide that on your own because you're democratic and you have a democratic workplace. So you can, it can be decided for you through planning. The trouble with that is then you begin to ask, well, what are the workers actually deciding? is one question, if it's all planned. The other question is, as soon as you have planning, you've got this material base for people, uh, for bureaucracy and people actually controlling you. So you have to have a check on this, and that's critical. So the question is, how do you have a check on this? Well, you can have all kinds of democratic mechanisms, uh, you know, forums for debating the plan, uh, the plan being transparent, uh, people being super informed. But it seems to me that you cannot deal with everything. So the question is, how do you have a, is there a role for markets? When you say you can't deal with everything, you mean it is not possible for, just questions of democracy aside, it's not possible for some central planning board to make the perfect plan that would deal with everything, right? You need some kind of input from from the, the masses of people and the market is the way to provide that. So the question is, can markets actually be a technology that helps with planning. That just as Marx said, don't make a fetish out of the market as the only way to do things. There's also a question of saying, well, if we had different social relationships, if we didn't have uh, capital owning property and workers having to sell their labor, can we imagine markets playing a role? You say in the article that we would need markets of some sort, but you make very clear that you do not mean a commodified labor market or a capital market. Yeah. You say both yeah. of those things we would be gotten rid of under socialism, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's what I wanted. That's just where I was getting to. So, you know, you can imagine walking down, you know, the main street in your neighborhood and there's all kinds of markets in terms of you buying fruit and uh, having a coffee or uh, buying a meal or, you know, even buying your clothes. And you can imagine that in a society which is equal in so many ways, those kinds of change, you know, those kinds of markets wouldn't really be a threat to the system if, if people base, have a, you know, a basic income and basic social goods. But the critical point is you can't have a labor market because, you know, part of the whole point of socialism is that you don't want to sell your labor power to somebody else so somebody else controls how you develop your own capacities as a human being, how you use them and how you develop them. So you can't have a labor market. You can have labor choices for people if they want to move, if they want to take another job and move someplace. But you can't say we're just going to uh, let you do what you're doing. And if the market says that you're relatively hopeless, we're going to lay you off or something. You cannot have a labor market, which raises other questions, which I'll get to in a second. And you can't have a market for capital because the problem with having a market for capital is that if those firms that are doing the best can invest their money in more equipment, then you're institutionalizing inequalities forever. 
So you can't say that capital can be allocated according to who uh, has, uh, you know, the best opportunity to get it because of their profits. So then you come up with the question of, well, if you're not going to allocate capital and you're not going to have a labor market, what else might you invent as mechanisms for dealing with these things so it doesn't just fall apart? And when you say a market for capital, you mean things like uh privately owned investment banks like the Goldman Sachs yes. of the world who yes. are the ones who control what investments get made and the they, they then accrue profits based on those investments that they made. So that is a kind of market that we're getting rid of. We're getting rid of a, a market that is not, not just financial, but that actually owns any assets. It might be General Motors and General Motors owning assets. You're trying to say that you have to have a mechanism for allocating capital that isn't based on a market of uh, where should it go that gets at its highest return. You'd have to say, we want to allocate it in a way. In fact, you might want to allocate it so that those firms who aren't doing well actually get more capital so they can catch up to everybody else. You might want workers visiting other plants so they see how they do things so they can actually be raised rather than say, oh, you're, you're, uh, you're a loser and dropping you off. So, so one of the questions is, how do you figure out a way of allocating capital so it deals with the kind of social issues you want? Which region of the country do you want it in? What are your priorities? How do you do this in a way that strengthens equality rather than undermines it? So that's one point. And then, you know, it's a similar point uh, with labor. So, it, so you start thinking about, well, how would you do this? So one of the issues that uh, I raised was uh, raising this question of sectoral councils. So the, the idea of a sectoral council would be, you know, roughly in a sector, for, uh, whether it's a hospital sector, education sector, uh, car manufacturing sector, uh, resource sector, you'd actually want to have an institution where instead of firms competing the way they do under capitalism, you'd have workers from the firms in that sector electing people to a sectoral council where they could make uh, plans for that sector as a whole that fit into the larger social plan. And then they could distribute capital within that sector to uh, meet the overall plans, but do it in a way that raises the productivity uh, and the quality of every firm in that sector. Now, what that does, in addition to trying to establish equality across a sector and meeting plans across a sector, and for example, having centralized research and development so that it's not who can get access to the research and development, but everybody can, so you're really sharing it. Uh, it's dealing with those issues, but it also means that you've got another layer of planning that's separate from just the central planning board. So again, it's part of trying to have checks and balances so you can have layers of planning. You can have planning centrally that does certain things. You can have layers sectorally that do certain things. You can have layers regionally that do certain things. The sector might be plugged into regional councils or urban councils. And then you have a lot of planning at the firm itself. So it's, it, you know, and the point is, as soon as you say that, it sounds, well, that's messier. I like the idea of planning. But that's the point. The point is that this is how people learn how to do things. This is what we're going to have to figure out how to do. But it's trying to deal with the question of capacities and checks and balances. Uh, which gets to another thing that I guess I should say about the market thing. One of the arguments that Hayek made, uh, and he made quite powerfully, and I think it needs to be taken more seriously than usually it is, is that uh, 
only capitalism can actually uh, get information from people that is latent. Because it's not obvious. If, for example, it's never obvious what people really actually want to buy or want. They go into a store and they browse. They don't sit down at the beginning of January and say, I know what I want and I'm going to give it to the central planners. And his question is, how do you find out what people really want and how do you find out what skills really exist in people if, unless you have private property and private incentives? And he said socialism could never do that. That's only something that capitalism can do through market. It's revealed uh, capacities and it's revealed information through competition and who wins and who loses and what people come up when they have an incentive to do this. And it's a serious argument. And my response to it would be that, first of all, actually markets as they are under capitalism systematically hide information. Because if it's private property and it's competition, you want to keep things from people. Well, one of the things is that socialism opens up the door to sharing information. The other thing is that Hayek actually thinks of capacities and the amazing capacities of capitalism, which he's right about, but he's thinking of the capacities of entrepreneurs. Workers are just commodities to him. The point of socialism is to see the potential capacities of ordinary people. And we don't know what they are. And, you know, if you gave workers factories right now, if you just gave them all to workers, they wouldn't know what to do with them because there's nothing about capitalism that teaches you how to run things. Never mind how to actually co coordinate all this complexity. So the point about socialism is it actually is concerned with not just the capacities of the entrepreneurs, but about the capacities of workers, about them learning something every day. When you look at productivity growth in capitalism, it's running at one or two percent. And the argument is that capitalism has so many incentives for higher productivity. Well, it's not hard to imagine workers who are working day in and day out on a job coming up with ideas about how to do this better that could match that kind of productivity. And even if it didn't quite match it, there would be so many other benefits that you would get out of this. So you are mentioning the workplace control of factories and of workplaces and of an in, in increase in worker knowledge about how to run factories and workplaces by themselves under socialism. Uh, one thing we should talk about is the, the workplace collective. Uh, you mentioned the sectoral council, but uh, workplace collective and worker-owned co-ops. Like, What does that look like? They're, they're sort of one of the, the smallest levels of uh, organization in, in the, uh, the scheme that you're laying out here, right? Yeah. Well, this is really fundamental because in a sectoral councils, you're going to have representative uh, representatives sitting on these sectoral councils elected by the workers. But the fundamental units, uh, you know, I, I was focusing on the productive sector. So you're talking about in firms making things, but also in the community administrating things. You would imagine in a socialist society where uh, production uh, maybe has less of an emphasis than other things that you do in your life, then how you administer the community and how you administer locally is fundamental. And why that's so important is because everyone is involved. That's where real democracy has to start. That's where you develop the confidence that you know things and can do things so you can be a check on higher uh, levels. A really crucial point here is that if you just had market socialism, in other words, you said workers own it, but we're going to let markets uh, and competition be the context, then what's going to happen is that in the name of competition and in the name of being successful, you end up saying, well, we better leave it to the experts. 
because they know better. And you end up reproducing inequalities because if it's going to be based on the market, then the people who do better have to uh, be able to keep more of the profits and invest them more. And so you create a, a hierarchy even within the firm. So getting rid of competition is so fundamental so you can really have a democratic structure in the firm where people can actually get some parameters about what the plan generally wants. And they can uh, take a look at markets to see, well, what are the costs as valued by society of these different materials? You put special costs on things around the environment. And people actually begin to work together to share work, to reorganize work. And that's why you can't just say, well, Walmart plans so we can plan too. The point is Walmart plans in a way in which they don't have to worry about democracy. You don't have to worry about workers saying no to figure out how you could plan. So workers really have input. And so democratic planning actually takes a lot of time. And away from doing other things that are, quote, efficient, uh, we have to learn how to do those things. We have to, and, it's, and it's making them a priority. One of the arguments uh, I think that's very important in thinking about co-ops is that co-ops under capitalism can fall into the trap of just being businesses uh, and that's a real problem. And the question under capitalism is, how do you politicize co-ops uh, so that they actually are part of a social movement? And you're not just saying, join our co-op so you can get something cheaper, but join our co-op because uh, you're feeding into a social movement and we're putting the money into organizers. But what it also means is you can start thinking about co-ops as places where people can develop the kind of skills they'll need under socialism, and that it's only under socialism that you can actually start fulfilling those those needs and really spreading them to all of society. You mentioned in the piece some level of inequality still existing in in this socialist society, and there being incentives for all kinds of things related to production and assumedly anything else. So can you talk about what that inequality and what incentives look like in the plan you've sketched out? Yeah, let me go Let me go back a step. I mean, you're trying to create a society which is equal in all kinds of ways. So you don't have uh, rich parents passing on advantages to their kids. You're trying to have a society where increasingly uh, more and more goods are public goods and are free. But you are trying to deal with the question of you want people to show up to work. You want people to uh, work hard, but not at the speed up rates of capitalism. Uh, you may want people to move to another community because you think you have to balance growth. So you want to have incentives, and the incentive may be the form of uh, a decent house rather than higher pay. So there are, there are ways in which you're trying to push people in certain directions. Uh, you may want, uh, you know, reduced work time for people, uh, which means you're making a choice between leisure and work. Uh, and then the question is, well, how should that trade-off be made? And that would require some incentives, depending on how important uh, production was, whether you're creating bottlenecks in your production. So you're all. It's the point is that there are so many choices to make, especially between leisure and work and the kind quality kind of work. But in so many other ways about regional development, urban development, you want people to move out of the city. All those things are going to require some kind of incentive. But you want to limit it so you don't have anybody accumulating wealth so they can then hire other people or lord it over other people. And you want it to constantly 
the inequalities to be squeezed by the social goods in society uh, and uh, the move to more free goods. And, uh, you know, and once you do that, then it might be a small incentive that makes somebody do something so they can get that extra good. But you're trying to always deal with this. I, I, I think what I'm trying to emphasize here is I'm not trying to prove that socialism is possible. I'm only trying to say that it's credible and that what we have to think about is ways in which it could be credible. And it isn't useful to be utopian and say, oh, the best way for me to mobilize people is to promise them that they can have everything they want uh, with no drawbacks. And it's easy. And it seems to me that that kind of an illusion will sink you if you ever start coming close to power and therefore having to create, you know, really deal with reality. What we need is people who are prepared for the fact that this is exciting, it's wonderful, uh, it's incredible to be part of this, but I also realize it's hard. And then I have to think about, you know, well, what do we have to do immediately? What's the most important thing to really structure this so it works? Is the sectoral committees important? Do we have to have massive planning first and let workers wait? Do we have to start with workers' control right away? And then you have to think about, and then how do we keep learning how to do this and uh, not screw it up because we can screw it up? You spend much of the article trying to make socialism and the nuts and bolts of what a socialist society should look like as credible. But you also say at the end of the article that the making of socialism must be understood as permanently in an uncertain state of becoming. Far from delivering nirvana, what socialism offers is that having removed the capitalist barriers to achieve to actively making life qualitatively better and richer, humanity can then begin to more and more consciously make its own history. So you're ending by exactly what you were just talking about, by saying that there is a lot of contingency here and there will be an incredible amount of room for you know, human creativity uh, and, and flourishing in, in that sense, and both in constructing this future society, but uh, also in achieving and building that, that future society. And, you know, the critique of capitalism is that create, it creates a sense that this is all there is. You can't do more. The point of socialism is to see that what we can make of ourselves is an open question. The, the excitement is about the fact that, hey, we can actually invent this. We can make it. We can create it. And, you know, to the extent that I dealt with the nuts and bolts, I really want to emphasize that what I was really doing was saying, here are things we have to figure out. And some of them are intimidating. So I'm going to take on some of those intimidating things and suggest, well, look, if we really think about this, we come up with a few solutions. And every solution we come up with actually raises another problem. So then we have to think about, well, how would we deal with this? And what I'm trying to do is invite people to say, uh, well, let's all think about this. Let's actually think about how could the hospitals be run? How could the education system be run? I didn't get into that kind of sectoral questions, but that would be terrific. How would an international economy work? Well, I think that we should do a lot of thinking about it. I don't know that we can answer it, and I don't think we should pretend we have to answer that before we move on. I should tell you that I started thinking about this in the 60s when I was a student. And I was going to do my thesis on what socialism would look like. And I concluded what a stupid thing to do in the middle of the 60s when there's so much going on here and now. And I don't think that was the wrong conclusion. But the defeat of the left since then, 
And when I say to the feet of the left, I include the really exciting left that I see out there, which, which I also see as being rather thin in terms of really talking about socialism. So, you know, we talk about a Green Deal, which is exciting, it's terrific to be on the agenda, but it doesn't, it doesn't get to workers because they don't think that you've got the, you know, we don't have the power. They know that this will require planning. You can't talk about promising them a just transition if corporations are going to make the decisions. So workers hear this stuff and it's too abstract. There's almost a division of labor. I think it's tremendously exciting that people are talking about this in an easy way and getting the socialist discourse on the agenda. And I don't think we should shit on them or see them as our enemies in any, any way. We should see this as great. You're doing a good job. But we also have to engage them and say, well, wait a second. As you get more serious, you've got to think about the state and the transformation of the state. And you can't just say these are policies. You're going to have to talk about how do we actually change power relationships so we could do this. And you can't assume that people are spontaneously perfectly knowledgeable. They're going to have to learn. To, you know, It's all those questions that part of the excitement should be, and it's a hard thing to balance, that the socialist discourse is thrilling. And yet we have to sometimes pull it back to earth a little bit without overwhelming people. As a guide to wrestling with these questions, there are a few better documents to start with, and I think your article in Catalyst, Socialism for Realists. So, Sam Gindin, thank you. Thanks a lot, Micah. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher, and you can always read us at jacobinmag.com.